Bruce Lee had that charisma. Like when he walked into a room or on screen, it was like everybody know, knew he was there, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Impossible to ignore, that's for sure. <laughs> you know, there's a degree of intensity that normal people don't have. Is that something you're born with or something you can, you are born with that? I think it is. I mean, don't get me wrong. Like anything that's basically some kind of natural talent, you can work on it. You can uh, you know, work on improving something you have. You can, if you don't ever take care of it, you can kind of accumulate dust on top of it. Yeah. But it's either there or it's not. <laughs> you know, it's yeah. like, and again, you can mod whatever amount you have, you can increase it a little, or through neglect, you can decrease it. Yeah. But yeah. the amount is, you know, I can spend. Uh, I can shoot as many basketball as Michael Jordan in my life, and I'm never going to be Michael Jordan. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's like, I don't, it's not about hard work. I can work just as hard, and I'll, I'll be a good player because if you work that hard, you will be good. But there's a difference between being good and being that something, which is supreme talent on top of extreme hard work. Yeah, that's, I think that's the kind of, that's so rare when you, when these people have, you have the talent, you have the charisma, but you also do the work on an intensity that no one does. I think that's yeah. so rare. Mm -hmm. Of course. Yeah. Definitely. And that's what, uh, that's what makes people, I mean, that's, I think is the trick. And also that's a tricky part regarding your original question about was Bruce Lee happy. Yeah. You need to be obsessive in order to be phenomenal in any one field. And I don't mean good because good, you don't have to be obsessive. You can be dedicated. That's enough. But to be really at the top of the game, to be Michael Jordan, to be Bruce Lee, you need to be absolutely obsessive. You need to have talent, and on top of it, you need to want to be the one who wakes up before everyone else, go to sleep after everyone else, and is grinding, grinding, grinding. Yeah. That's a recipe to success, depending on how we define success. At In least performance. Sense. It's the definition. Yeah. yeah, it leads to performance. Yeah. The problem is that those qualities that make you great in one field are they tend to be the same qualities that make it very hard for you to sit back and enjoy life yeah. because you are constantly wanting to more and more and grind and attack and hustle and just do it all and be on this. Uh, yeah, yeah, I did that. That was great. But the next thing is more important and the next and the next. And so generally speaking, you have, you know, we all operate between two poles. On one hand, you have the one who's just sitting under the tree, all happy, and the coconut fall into his arms. And he's like, look at that. And he's just not exactly very motivated to get stuff done, just, but content and at peace. Yeah. At the other extreme, you have the grind, 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 hard work. Now, never mind the fact that most people don't fit in either one of these because most people are neither as happy and content as the happy Buddha under a tree or are as successful as the one who's pushing as hard as they can. Uh, most of them don't have either of these. So that would be a step up to at least embody one of those archetypes. Yeah. But even if you do, there's a problem, right? Because uh, in one case, it's like you're sweet, you're happy, you seem to enjoy life. But man, maybe a little fire under your ass wouldn't hurt to get something done. Yeah. And on the other end, the people a la Bruce Lee, I don't think they can ever sit back and just relax and enjoy life. 
Yeah. It's just not in the DNA. It's like there's that degree of obsessiveness force you to constantly shoot for more, yeah. which is great in terms of production, is not so great in terms of life enjoyment. Yeah. And in fact, there's one of his, uh, you know, you're talking about writing down goals. There's one that I dug up where in uh, 1969, I believe, um, he said, I, Bruce Lee, will be the first. He wrote this down before his success, right? When it's still, this is a crazy long shot and there's no way he can pull it off. And here I, I, Bruce Lee, will be the first highest paid Oriental superstar in the United States. In return, I will give the most exciting performances and render the best quality in the capacity of an actor. Starting 1970, I will achieve worldwide fame. And from then onward until the end of 1980, I will leave in my possession $10 million. I will live the way I please and achieve inner harmony and happiness. Now, clearly, in 1969, when Bruce Lee is basically nobody in terms of popularity, you know, a couple of people in Hollywood know who he is, but, you know, he's a beat player at best. Yeah. The odds, this is the talk of a crazy man. There's no way he's going to pull it off. They're just, yeah. you have to win the lottery five times in a row to pull that off, right? Yeah. And he does. He does achieve the worldwide fame. He does, and he lived long enough, he would have made even much more money than he even wrote down there. Yeah. He, he pulled that off to perfection. The last part, though, the I will live the way I please and achieve inner harmony and happiness, it would have been interesting to see what would have happened had he lived. Yeah, it's 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 crazy when you look at people like Bruce Lee. And I mean, I think he's the epiphany of like reaching your goals, right? And and changing the whole landscape of how a genre, like it's it's just unbelievable. But it's also the, the, the question I'm asking because I'm trying to, you know, find what is real success. How do you, uh, can you reach that level unless you're crazy, basically? Yeah, that's where it's, Theoretically, maybe, but it's such an insanely delicate balance that the odds of being able to maintain it are not easy. Yeah. Because uh, you're going to naturally push either toward a little bit too much laziness or pushing too hard. And it's the classic story. You know, you see people all the time who are mega successful and are miserable, who are not enjoying their life because they are all they know is this idea of if I work hard, if I do this, I will achieve all this, this, and the other, and I will get to this place. Yeah. And then they get there and they are like, all they know is to keep hustling. They don't know how to, you know, get into that place was a mirage because there is no getting there and now you get to enjoy life. No, you're, all you know is to grind some more. It never ends, right? In a way. It never ends. Yeah. And in your research, did you did you find anything written about happiness and uh, things of that nature that he talks about? I mean, he really knew his stuff well. So he talked about, you know, the way he talks about, there's a lot of his stuff is very Taoist philosophy driven kind of stuff. And he says everything right. You know, he talks about balance. He talks about this. He talks about that. It, you know, he clearly understood it. 
I think based on life circumstances and also his personality, that was a hard thing to pull off in practice. Now, he died, he was 32 years old, so we can't ask the guy too much. You know, it's like, of course, you haven't figured out everything about life by the time you're 32 and you have this amazing, perfect balance with things that most people would never be able to handle. So really the question is what would have happened had he lived another decade or two or three or more? And of course, nobody knows, you know, there's no way to tell. He was clearly, by the time he died, he was clearly struggling with that. He wasn't something that he had a clear answer to. He had he had it in his mind, yeah. you know, his mind understood it, but it didn't translate into practice. Yeah. But I think that's, isn't that, from my research of successful people, it's pretty normal when you're growing and if you're playing at a very high level, you it takes five, 10 years for you to find that balance. And maybe he never reached that level because he died. Totally, totally. So it's very possible that he could have. It's still a hard thing. Like most people, most forget most people, not very successful people are not going to be able to find it. Yeah. But some will. You know, it's not to say that it's impossible. It, it can be done. It's just not easy because they can. They are mutually contradictory qualities. The qualities that allow you to be obsessive enough to be that successful tend to be antithetical to the qualities that allow you to sit back and smell the roses and just enjoy life. Yeah. And I'm curious, like in your research, how, like have you found any indication of what the driving force is to push yourself on a, such an extreme level? Because, I mean, we study, we both study a lot of fighters and I mean, a lot of fighters push themselves to an extreme level. Sure, but I think this is, this is another level when you're almost, like most people would have, you know, their body would have stopped long time ago so, for, and forced the rest, right? Uh, and then then we have Bruce Lee. Yeah. I think some of it really is something you have inside. It's like there's a line, um, I don't think it's the Hagakure. I think it's a commentary on the Hagakure by Yokio Mishima, where he talks about, you know, a lion chasing its prey and sometimes missing its prey because he runs past the prey. Yeah. And it's because it's an excess of energy. <laughs> and it's like, why is he doing it? Because it's a lion, you know, it's just, yeah. there's just too much of that. <laughs> pent up energy that he has stored up all day and it's just uh-huh. exploding in. And in some cases, see, that's kind of the feeling you got from Bruce Lee, that he was going to do something phenomenal one way or another. And by phenomenal, I don't necessarily mean good because in the wrong scenario, he may have been like a phenomenal gangster or a phenomenal, who knows, you know, not necessarily phenomenal in the sense, of, but something great on a great scale, on a big, intense scale. Um, whether that was good or bad, of course, that would depend. But clearly he had that energy, that drive, that intensity, that, you know, why are some people more intense than others? Sometimes, you know, you see them as kids and you're like, yeah, that kid is intense. Those other 15 (laughs) in the class are not. Why? Who knows? And, And again, whether that's good or bad remains to be seen because intensity by itself, it certainly a weapon to some degree can allow you to do things that other people cannot, but it can also push you into a mental space that's not always the best where other people don't go. So it's uh, it's a double-edged sword, really. You're, you go to Japan, you come back, and then 
you love sports and then you go you go on a skiing trip can you just talk about that and and like what happened yeah so so i actually got recruited for a couple of schools to 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 run cross country track and decided to to kind of focus more of my efforts on like student council and things that were more um like student council oriented and so freshman year i was one of the liaisons on our in our undergraduate campus we, i went to ucsd where i met my co-founder and sophomore year in 2009, I was 19, and uh, we were up for um, our friend's birthday, a little skiing trip. And, you know, everything seemed regular. It was like, little did I know that my life would change, you know, in like the next like 24 hours. But I was going up a jump like about February 8th in 2009, and, and I landed um, on my spine about 35 feet going off a pretty big jump. Um, I grew up skiing. I grew up snowboarding. Uh, it was something I loved doing. It's still a big part of my life. Um, I go mono skiing now, which is it's incredibly fun. But um, in that moment, um, yeah, everything stopped. Like I remember hitting the ground. It was cold. It was like a whiteout storm, so you couldn't really quite see your landing, and that I think that was a, a big reason for for the injury. Um, but I remember laying down, and I mean the park was pretty much closed because the weather was so bad and the conditions were so bad, but. Luckily, my girlfriend at the time was behind me, uh, realized something was wrong. I couldn't get up. I couldn't feel my legs. Um, she skied down to get ski patrol. And immediately, I mean, I kind of knew something was serious when I, I couldn't feel my legs. I couldn't move. And I also was having trouble breathing because uh, the impact was so big that what happened was like I had a T9 burst fracture. So my, my ninth uh, thoracic vertebrae exploded and I punctured my right lung because I broke all my ribs. And so it was a combination of all that, but a lot of adrenaline. I remember just like, where am I? Like what happened? Um, I knew where I was, but I knew something was, was bad. So I didn't want to fall asleep or if I hit my head, I didn't want to like go unconscious. Um, but I mean, within eight hours between the ambulance, going to one hospital, going to another, going to trauma one surgery um, in Loma Linda, um, they, they, they put me under to, to stabilize my spine and, and basically rebuild my back. Um, I woke up a couple of days later in the ICU and then I was told that, you know, I would, I would never walk again. And so that was one surreal. And two, I, I actually didn't believe it at first. I was like, there's no way that this could happen. I was just, I'm running, I'm snowboarding. How, how could this happen? Especially at that age, um, there's a lot of moments of confusion and, and denial, I think at first. Um, but yeah, spent the better half of about six months in and out of living in a hospital and then um, trying to go back to school later that same year in September. Thank you for sharing that first. Yeah. No. What happens in 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 the mind during those times when like somebody tells you like, "Hey, you're you're never gonna walk again," and you you don't believe them, like right? Uh, yeah. And when when does it kick in, and and how do you like what are what are the thoughts that goes through your mind at that point? Um, I, I, the first, the first moment when I heard it, I, I didn't believe it. I was almost like in denial, so much shock. Like I, I like visit, my brain could not process like what was being told. Um, you know, my mom was living in Japan at the time, flew in my dad, my sister, my close friends. Um, and I think like they knew that something was really serious. Um, and then when they heard the diagnosis, I think everybody was like just shocked, you know, crying. I got letters from you know, my team in high school and, you know, like friends and everybody back at school. And, and I think that started to sink in where I was getting like big posters and cards and get better and get well soon, text messages, emails, all that stuff. And 
I think for the first few months, it was, you know, almost like blind optimism. I, I, you know, I thought that like, I have to get better. There's no way. And I think reality to really started to sink in, I would say month three onward. And, um, to, to be completely honest, I think the first two years was very, very tough. Um, I went through major ups and downs, emotional swings from like 19 to 21. Um, also during that two year span, I did uh, a total of about 15 surgeries. So every time I was like, wait, why me? And then you go through this like moments of frustration, depression, um, even suicidal thoughts. You're just like, I, I don't know what my life is going to even mean anymore. Like how, how can I possibly recover from this? Or like what kind of future can, can my life hold? So you ask yourself a lot of these questions and in a lot of ways, it, it became very philosophical. I lived a lot in my mind and, and asked myself these difficult questions. And um, honestly, like without the friends and the family and that like kind of unconditional support, um, I, I really don't think I would be here. I mean, it, it's so crazy because I've I've had those thoughts like, what would happen to my life if I if I am in an accident and mm -hmm. I get paralyzed? And to be honest with you, before I started this podcast four or five years ago, I, I would would have said like, "Hey, I don't want to live then." Mm -hmm. Exactly. Uh, yeah, those are exact thoughts that yeah. go through a lot of people's minds. I think. Yeah, I think a lot of. But then when you you get the, the the opportunity to meet with people that have gone through that, you realize that something we're we're magnificent magnificent as human beings. We yeah. find a way to survive, and we find a way to thrive again, and. Can you just talk about when when was the shift when you like went from hey I don't want to do this anymore and like what's going on with my life until you started feeling like hey I can actually do this I think it yeah there's like one to 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 go into that point what you're saying humans are incredibly adaptable um yeah. and and perseverance is a huge a huge factor I think people aren't sure what they're capable of until like their backs against the wall and like you know, you're, you're yeah. forced and you're, you're pushed to, to, to see, see what your limits are. And for me, it was a lot of that was like the emotional and mental push. Like I, I really thought I was like on that verge. Um, but it in, in turn made me more stronger, I think in a lot of ways, more empathetic. But I think going back to your point, um, I think it, it was about a year and a half into it. When I first made my like trip out, I, I traveled with some friends, realized that like, oh, a lot of the things that I focused on in the, in the beginning, it was like, oh, I can't do this or I can't do that. This is going to be different. And then you realize you put all these negative thoughts in your mind of like, oh, like you start with, I can't versus before it's like, oh, I can do this. And slowly you start checking off things of like, oh, I can, I can go on a road trip or I can go to music festivals. I can learn to drive. You, I can graduate. I could double make, you start doing things and you start checking off goals. And, um, and then you slowly kind of build your confidence back. I think for me, it wasn't obviously an overnight thing. You, you don't just get, wake up the next morning. You're like, hey, you know what? Everything is good. It was like slow, small milestones. And I think one, one thing I always tell myself and, and, you know, others is just like celebrate the small wins because life is so short, moves so fast. Uh, you got to just appreciate, you know, how far you've come and, and, you know, give yourself, give yourself some credit, you know, when, when credit's due and you're working hard and, and you see small levels of progression. Um, I think that's really important for, for one, your mental health and, and two, your confidence to, to build into something and, and realize that, um, your goalposts can keep moving back further and further. And you can, you can be more confident and you can start to look for, 
for more bigger and audacious goals. Like, you know, it, it slowly happens, but it, it takes it takes small steps at a time. Was it any specific person or book or YouTube video or anything that kind of started giving you more energy? Man, I yeah, so many of my close friends were you're pivotal. Like, you know, my co-founder Kent's like one of my best friends. He's like a brother to me. Um, my childhood best friend Brandon came to visit me in the hospital. And I remember one thing he said was like, Hey man, like you're still the same guy, but now you're just in the chair chilling. And he just said that with so much swag and confidence. And I I laughed because I was like, oh man, like you're right. Like I'm still the same person. Like getting from point A to point B might be different, but inherently, like I am who I am. And that injury or accident or traumatic event can a lot of times shape you, but it doesn't necessarily have to define you. And for me, that was huge. I was like, you know what? You're right. This doesn't have to define me. I can, I can, I can use this as an experience and then like better, further, further better myself in a lot of ways. So, I mean, there's so many people in my life. Um, Marcus Haney, uh, one of my best friends from high school, um, took me on my first road trip and trip after my accident. That was an eye-opening experience. Um, yeah, there's just so many people I, I can't even begin to thank, like really close friends. And I'm, I'm really fortunate for that. Awesome. And as far as, you know, I meet so many people that are paralyzed in their mind. Mm -hmm. You know, they're stopping themselves from doing things because they think they can't. And uh, mm -hmm. what do you want to tell tell those people? I, I think yeah. it's such such a shame when you see that, like, hey, believe in yourself and yeah. and, and And, and and try get the small wins, but it it's much easier said and done, especially oh, if, sure. you, if you're if you if you feel we we all know like when we feel weak, it doesn't matter if someone says, yeah, come on, cheer up, buddy. Like you're like fuck you, yeah. I, I I don't like. Yeah. So I felt that it's, way. It's hard. Yeah, I mean, I remember in the beginning, um, you know, when I first got my accident, and they they were trying to force a therapist, the neuropsychologist, all these people would just see me, and I was like, no, like. Why, why the fuck do I need to talk to someone who doesn't know my condition? Like, why am I going to talk about a talk to a stranger? And I was really stubborn and, and I was really kind of naive that, you know, talking through things is actually really therapeutic. Um, but like what I have to say about that is, yeah, I, I do know what it's like to be paralyzed in your mind because those first two years was a real uphill battle. And uh, the moments where I'm like, what's the point? You ask yourself like, why? And I think there has to be a moment where you just have to stop feeling sorry for yourself. Like I felt sorry that I was like, Hey, I'm a young kid. I had a bright future. What happened? And I started talking to myself in all these past tense, like this could have, or I, I should have. And, you know, everyone knows this is you can always say that you, you should have, could have, would have, like, it's all these like ex almost excuses. And, and there, there came to be a point where I didn't want to feel sorry for myself. I didn't want to be a case where people were always like, Oh, You know, we had these expectations for Ryan and I'm sure Ryan had expectations of himself, but because of this, like, you know what, he has a perfectly good reason or excuse not to, or not to be able to accomplish those things. And I think all of us start to convince ourselves of that if we tell ourselves that long enough. Um, I think after college and I, I graduated, you know, I was able to graduate with my friends and my peers. It took a lot of time and, and there was a lot of, a lot of that mental thing. I was like, man, you know what? Like all my friends are getting these cool internships in the summer. They're traveling. I'm like in summer school trying to keep up and catch up. And, you know, you're going to go through these hard moments in your life, but just know that if you keep working at it, you're going to get far. And I think when, when people are paralyzed in their minds and, and thinking like, 
you know, I can't do this or I can't do that. Um, I would just say eventually you just got to snap out of it and then know that you can, you just got to push yourself. And as far as looking at, you know, confidence and what do you do on a, on a day-to-day to work, day-to-day basis to work on your confidence? That's a good question. I don't know if I've been asked that. A day-to-day <laughs> confidence, I would say being proud of like what you're doing, you know, like if you're doing hard work and, you know, it might not be completely your passion, at least you know that you're working hard. Or if you're not liking what you're doing, actively looking for something that is going to be going toward achieving your goal. So I think that all boils down into the confidence and and kind of staying grounded, staying connected with like, you know, people who are close with your lives, you know, pick up the phone, call a loved one. I think it's a, it's a firm reminder of, you know, who you are and where you are. And I think that that all kind of falls into like, you know, self-confidence. Yeah, I think uh, confidence is so hard because I realized in my life when I'm happy, I'm usually very confident. Mm-hmm. And when I'm sad, it's almost like the body shows like, yeah. like when you- You slouch like, over, you're, yeah. you kind of put your head a little bit down. Yeah, mood affects yeah. a lot of that. In a sport like 400 meter hurdles, you, you, it's very easy to measure like, how fast you run right and how does that affect you in training because we all we all want to see improvement and and in a race that's 400 meters not that much time so it's hard to cut off time right and how does that uh, how does that affect an, an athlete and a human being measuring yourself that much so you're right that track and field like milliseconds matter and you can train your butt off for like a whole year, months and months, running till you make yourself sick. Like you're in the gym every day, like four hours, like on the track, in the weight room, physio treatments, like doing all the stuff only to by the end of the year, improve by 0.3 of a second. But I think it's all a matter of perspective because I know that 0.3 of a second is a big deal because the changes are so minute and like, a small improvement like that, when you are at really high, um, like when you're at a threshold now where like early on in your career, you make leaps and bounds up the mountain because your development isn't as refined. But as you get closer and closer to like, what is your peak level? Those improvements are quite small. And so I think it's about understanding the perspective of like, okay, yeah, it makes sense that I'm no longer improving by entire seconds because I'm, I'm at a really high level. Like I'm, I'm now competing at the times that the best in the world are only a second apart. So I can't keep improving one second every year or I'm probably doping. (laughs) But, um, so I think like, I actually loved the measurement to the degree that it was because there's very few things that you can measure so microscopically that from yesterday to today, you know, you got 0.1 of a second better, you know, like right now it's like, you might be better off as a um, podcast host. You might've improved since yesterday, but can you really measure it from yesterday to today? Not as well as I can measure how quickly I got faster. Like, and so while it's challenging to have a measuring stick and like a microscope, microscope over your development, it's also like the best thing ever because it's like, I can see every single day 
that I'm taking steps forward. And so I loved being able to measure. I'm actually like nervous now that I've just retired just a year ago. I'm like, man, like I can't measure anything else like that. Like what else? Like how can I bring this, it's this same system to something else, you know? So, um, yeah, I loved the measuring that, my, that closely. Yeah, I bet. And uh, Sarah, I study success and I want to redefine success and the definition of success in, in I feel like most of us look at success as performance, but mm-hmm. I I also want to incorporate happiness. So I'm I'm curious, does performance lead to happiness? So I love that. And I love that you're on a mission to change the definition of success because I feel similarly. Yeah. Um, so I'll answer this kind of long-windedly as I have done this whole time, but... Uh, so remind it. me if I don't answer your question, re-ask me. Sarah, this is um, this is honoring your journey. The the yeah. more I'm quiet, the better it is. <laughs> no. Um, so I end every single keynote I do, every single time. This is my like token line. Like I want this internet, I want this this quote to be like an internet sensation where it says, like, said by Sarah Wells. You know? <laughs> In a perfect world, this t- really catches on, it becomes a classic. But I finish every single keynote with hard work doesn't always lead to success, but being resilient will always lead to another opportunity for it because we're not always going to get that outcome. As hard as you try, you could do all the right stuff. You can deserve it. You can earn it. You can like should have, would have all the things, but that doesn't mean you're going to get that outcome. And so hard work doesn't always lead to success. But being resilient will always help you find the next opportunity for it. Because no matter what the thing is, I have no doubt, even if you didn't get it, you can still pick the lessons learned and pick them up and apply them over here for that next opportunity. And so as long as you are willing to get back up, to look for the next opportunity, to ask for help where you need it, to be able to get back on your course, well, then you're always going to find the next opportunity for success because the things that do allow you to achieve the times where you do get the thing, where you do achieve success, it's not the success moment that makes you have stronger sense of belief or feel more accomplished. It's not the actual outcome. It's the action that took place ahead of that, that you were disciplined, you were determined, you were resilient, you were courageous, you were positive, like whatever those character traits are that enabled that. That's really what you need. And so for me, success isn't defined by achievements. Success is defined by actions. And I encourage everyone, like my, I now run a youth organization called the Believe Initiative. And the Believe Initiative helps people build self-belief through action. Because I know that's how you build self-belief. Like it's not about just accomplishing and achieving and, and getting the outcome. But it's about what actions can you take so that you can say, oh, I did that. I was the person who embodied that experience. Like I was the person who can clearly push past, overcome, find a way. And even if I didn't get the thing, I can still be that person again for the new pursuit I'm on. And so the Believe Initiative has now impacted over 120,000 people who have built what I call Believe Passion Projects that help them connect a passion they have a problem they want to solve, and they use that passion to solve that problem and build self-belief through action. 
And so redefining success for me is like, how can we help more people simply just take action so that they can see what they're capable of, so that they can see that that this, there, there's so much more to the pursuit of a big goal than getting the outcome. And I think by enabling the opportunity to find those things, to connect passions you have, like things you love to do, to helping serve other people, whether that's like local community problems, greater global problems, um, you can really build that sense of self-belief and redefine what success looks like. Wow. Yeah, I'm getting goosebumps because I think we all as athletes or any human being, you come to a road, uh, what's it called? A crossroad in your life mm -hmm. and you have to make a decision and actually look at what your, is your actions in alignment with what you're saying that you want. And I think mm -hmm. that is, if you're listening to this right now, we hear it all the time. I want to do this. I want to do that. But are you actually doing it? Or do you just like the idea of, of doing it? Right. Right. Um, and it's hard, especially if you've dedicated your life to something to such, such a long time, it's hard to find, mm -hmm. find that new, new route. And, um, but I'm glad that you had that moment that you were had you had something else that took over. A lot of a lot of people mm -hmm. don't have that. They have to find yeah. that again. You were in a good position, which which I I really like. And uh, I know you gotta go. So I have one final question to you, mm -hmm. and then we'll let you go. Uh, for people that are listening to this show, um, now my phone is calling. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'm not even going to look and I put it on sleeping mode. So I know, right. It's not, apparently it's just not working today. <laughs> it's not working. Yeah. Uh, so final question for people that actually have listened and stayed the full course here and want to create an impact in their own life. What would be the first step they can do right after this show? Ask for help. Whatever that goal is that you have in mind, whatever, obstacle you're facing or the thing you're like, I wish I could do this, but this is in the way, or I have this dream that I want to get here. Now, as soon as you pick whatever that thing's going to be obstacle, you need to get by or what goal you now want to set. Think of three people that might know something about achieving that thing or about overcoming that obstacle. And then go ask them for help. Paint them the picture of like, this is what I'm headed. This is why I want to do it. This is what I want to know about getting there. What, what can you share with me? Because just by finding that mentor or guide or person that can just offer a little bit of assistance will allow you to fast forward your ability to get to that dream, like well beyond what you ever thought possible. And for me, like if we think back to the beginning, that coach who saw me in high school and said, you need to do track and field that coach believed in me before I ever believed in myself. My niece is three years old and clearly has her like gotten a hold of the phone and I don't know how to turn it off. So I really apologize to everyone. <laughs> no, no worries. No worries. We, <laughs> I hope you, you guys got, got the message and uh, you know, this, this is life. We're all going to be distracted all the time, but we just yeah. have to kindly don't be hard on yourself. Kindly take yourself back to the moment. Right. How did you go from being unlovable till, you know, start loving yourself? I, I think that's the hardest challenge we all face to actually love our, ourselves. 
Mm, that's such a beautiful question. Thank you for asking. I remember when I started my journey of like healing, I mentioned Louise Hay, right? She is an incredible author and she has her publishing company. She passed away a couple of years ago, but she had like 94, you know, beautiful 94 and she was beautiful and vibrant. And I remember I was watching one of her videos and she said, go to the mirror and say, I love you. And when I heard it from her, I didn't even lift my booty from the floor because I'm like, that's a waste of time. Why would I do that? I don't love myself. I don't even like myself. And I'm like, oh, wow. Like that was this aha moment that I want other people to love me. I want other people to respect me. And I don't do that for myself. So that was like this big aha moment. I'm like, uh oh. So back then I wasn't able to love myself. I just wasn't. I look at me and I saw all of the flaws and everything that was wrong and everything I want to improve. However, I was open and willing to start accepting myself. So that was a place where I started. I went to the mirror. I'm like, I'm open to accept you. I'm open and willing to accept you the way you are. And I kept doing this and I kept like looking into mirror and instead of looking at the flaws, I look at every time I look at the mirror, I either smile or I say something nice to myself like, oh, actually your lips are really nice. Oh, I actually like your long hair. Oh, the dress today, it's really cute. I know it's really superficial that we are like, you know, the inner beauty and all these things, that's beautiful. But when you're going from the darkness and you see everything that is wrong with you, you get to start on the outside level and it will start creating the inside feeling of feeling better. So that's that's like this beautiful alchemy in life, right? Like really transmuting this energy from like, I'm so outwardly oriented and I need the validation from others. Okay, you need validation, great, don't judge it. Give yourself the validation. Give yourself the things that you are so craving from others. And then when you're feeling better, you will start choosing better. You will start attracting better because you're not needy anymore. You're loving, even if you're loving your dress, even if you're loving your smile, even if you're loving today's weather, you will be the love that you're craving. Yeah. Thank you for sharing that. And how how long did that take for you, that journey? Um, I'm still on the journey. <laughs> Let's be honest. Let's, Let's be, be honest. honest. Yeah. That's like, it's going to be always the journey. There are, for example, I'm so blessed that I overcame my eating disorder for like nine years. Now I'm, you know, healthy. Uh, That's big. Thank you. It's huge because I never thought it will be possible to overcome. It's like addiction, right? Addiction to alcohol, smoking. I was addicted to food. And so that was like me overcoming the addiction. So that is healed. And there are still things that come up for me like, oh, am I good enough as a coach? Am I good enough as, you know, the influence that I want to create in the world? Is my podcast really meaningful? And I have over 100,000 downloads, right? So it's not like I'm talking to a bird in my backyard. <laughs> 
but there's like every new level will bring in new things you get to work on. But that's why we came here. We came here to evolve. We came here to grow and it's going to be different. And I allow myself these seasons. There is a season that I'm like, Hey, I'm a really badass. I have a six figure online business and I love my clients. And there are days that I'm crying and I don't want to do anything. And I'm sitting in a shower and I'm like, this sucks because I need a new team members and I don't have the budget for it and all these things, right? So it's 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 a different or I want to be with my family in Czech Republic and I can't right now. So there are going to be different challenges, yet the, the growth and the journey will be always there. There will be days you look into the mirror and you like wink at yourselves, like looking good. And there are days that you're like, you should probably stop eating donuts and pizza and go to the gym and look at those jeans. They're really tight. Like what are you doing? Right. So it's going to be seasons and you get to accept it. I, I, it, I agree with you. It's, it's interesting because what I'm trying to do here is redefining success. And I think most people, when they think of success, what they really mean is performance in X field. Uh, and that is not what I believe success is. I think it's something completely different and it's about living in alignment with who you are and, and making the world around you better. Uh, that's, that's part of my definition of success. And speaking about abundance, I've been thinking about that the last couple of days because I... I want to, no, let me be totally honest. I, I want to believe in abundance, but I'm not there yet. So I'm, I'm telling myself, you know, when I'm looking at my vision board that I have in front of me, I'm telling myself when I'm doing something that is out of my comfort zone, I'm, I'm telling myself abundance, abundance, abundance. But on these morning walks that I had the last couple of days, I got to be honest and say, Hey, I am not there yet. So maybe you can help me and the people that are listening that are, you know, either they're have full on scarcity mindset. I'm no, I, I don't have that, but full abundance and trusting the universe completely. I'm not there yet. Mm. Thank you for being so honest. And I love that, you know, because I was on my journey and I'm, like I said, we'll always be on the journey. There will be always ebbs and flow. And, you know, you get to first define abundance. What does abundance mean to you? Does it mean that you're always provided and taken care of, right? That's one thing. Is abundance living a comfortable or rich life? Is abundance to have amazing relationship, amazing health? For me, abundance, I think about fulfillment, right? Feeling fulfilled in my life and do whatever, whenever, with whoever I want. And like abundance for me, it's freedom. That's what I equal it to, right? Like, my biggest like success in life is being abundantly paid to be me, right? It's beautiful. I'm abundantly paid to be me right now in my life and it's freeing and liberating. So when you think about abundance, you are, let's slow down and say, when you think abundance, you think, right? You think you're in your head because very often it's more challenging to drop into your heart. When you're in your heart, you know. When you're in your heart, you trust. It's like when you're hugging your wife and you're having a moment and you're looking into her eyes, you know. You know you love her. 
You know, she loves you. There's this beautiful moment when everything stops and you know. You don't need a proof. You don't need evidence. You know she loves you, right? You're in your heart. Now, when we go up back in your head, you can be thinking, she forgot to make me a lunch. She doesn't love me. She forgot to pick up my laundry. You know, she didn't give me a kiss when she was waking up this morning. You're in your head. The same happens with abundance. You can be in your head and thinking, well, how does it work, this abundance thing? Because I'm like, keep working on it. And I'm looking in my vision board and it's not happening. And I am repeating these money mantras and my money is still the same. Or I still see the red numbers. Or why is it not like rising faster than I want it to be rising? Like, why am I not abundantly paid if I'm doing so much work? So when you're in your head, your head needs evidence. You're not yet in your heart. So when your mind needs the evidence, you give it to. Where is already abundance in your life? Start writing down the abundance in your life. There's abundance of air. There's abundance of fresh water, probably where you live. There is abundance of electricity, internet. There's abundance of hugs and kisses if you're happily married, right? There's abundance of your heartbeat. Go to the nature, lay on the grass. There's so much abundance. Look at the sky. Look at the sun. The sun, it's not like, okay, we got to end this. There's no more abundance for the day, right? It will go shine somewhere else, but it's not like you're clocked out of abundance. So you get to give your mind evidence of abundance. And if your, um, if your goal or focus in abundance, it's money, which is perfectly fine because I love teaching on this topic, uh, you get to redefine your relationship with money. I used to treat money as a booty call. Now I want you, now I don't. Now I want to spend you, now I don't trust you. Where are you? Where are you going? Like I had such a like push and pull relationship with money. I had to change that. Because if I would ask you today, the way you're treating money, do you want to be treated? What would you say? Probably no. Yeah. Yeah. If you would have asked me just three years ago, I wouldn't. I wouldn't, I didn't, I, I didn't check on my money. I didn't check on my bank accounts. I get money, I spend money, I spend more money than I made. It doesn't matter if I made 5,000 or $15,000, I would spend a couple thousand more than I made because I didn't value money. I didn't respect money. I thought that I have to be working really hard to make the money and then I couldn't hold on to it because I didn't feel worthy. And I thought that I have to be investing in people and, and things just so I can feel worthy of having these things and relationships in my life. So if your desire is to enrich your life, which is absolutely beautiful thing because more good people made great money, we can make great things, right? Um, I truly believe that you get to redefine your relationship with money. And I started to do my uh, weekly money dates, you know, because if you're in relationship, it's not like you will check on your partner like once in three months because the taxes or payments are due, right? You will text them every day because you're in love. Yeah. Or you will have a date once a week because you want to see them. You want to know how they are doing. So, you know, to, to answer your question about abundance, first of all, you get to give your mind evidence. Second of all, you get to start learning to drop into your heart and drop into those moments when you are feeling abundant, whether it's like 
your lungs being full with the fresh air when you're after run or because you can run or because you can stretch or because you can hug your loved ones. Those moments are the moments that make me feel the richest. When we're laying in a park with my fiance and he's doing tapping on me, I feel so thankful, so thankful that I have somebody who sees me and it's present to me. Start appreciating the abundance. You will feel better. And when you're feeling better, you're attracting better because you're not looking at this gap. Like, why am I doing all these things, all my vision boards and all, and I don't see anything happening because you put a condition on it. It has to happen this way. Let the universe do its thing. There is always a divine timing. It's not like you go to the restaurant, you order food with your wife, and two minutes later, you run to the kitchen. I was like, hey, guys, are you sure you got my order? Do you want me to show you how I like it? Are you working on it? No, you don't. You stay. You have a great conversation with your wife while they're working on your order. The same happens with the universe. You know how happy I am that so many things didn't happen in my life? The universe can see the bigger picture. We don't. So you get to trust the divine timing. If I would be making the money I'm making today, like five years ago, I would screw it up. I wouldn't know how to invest. I wouldn't know how to take care of my team. I wouldn't know how to treat my money. I would screw it up. Now I'm investing. Now I'm saving. Now I'm investing in my business growth. I'm happy. But I didn't have this relationship years ago. It feels like you're saying no but I'm listening to all these experts and the whole everything you're saying, Tony and Dean were talking about the whole week. Like <laughs> find the dot, find the dot. And it's scary, right? And but you have to own one part of your business before expanding, and you have to own one part of your life before expanding. But I mean, I I know this. I study success, but for me, it's super scary because I'm I'm honing in and I'm I'm about to go super ultra specific, but it scares the shit out of me. Okay, so Peter, let me ask you: Are you willing to be coached right now? Yeah, sure. Let's do it. All right. So, what specifically scares you about it? it scares that I'm gonna miss out. Ah, miss out on what? miss out on opportunities, clients, uh, business, life. Uh. So, so right now, what, um, what part of not having clarity is working for you? I mean, <laughs> that's, that's a great question. It, I mean, it's not. Uh, ah, but yet you're holding on to it. Yes, because I, I'm, I'm afraid of missing out. Yeah. So, and, and no, too, this idea of missing out is really common right now, but what, and I, I, I'm not going to tell you, I'm just going to ask you, I want you to really look at specifically, what are you missing out on and not just hypothetical, right? So has there ever been a, a time in your life when you've been crystal clear? Yeah, it has. Yeah. What did you miss out on? I became a world medalist. Okay. So what did you miss out on when you were a world medalist? Nothing. So you have proof that when you get clarity, you don't miss out on something. Yeah. But right now, your fear is that you will miss out on something. 
Yes. Without any proof that that will happen. Yes. Okay, so let's go with the technique that we talked about before, because it sounds to me like this is another situation where it's false evidence appearing real, right? You don't have proof that it's happened in the past. You actually have the opposite. You became a world medalist, um, but there is this fear. So worst case scenario, what specifically do you miss out on? So you gave me, you miss out on opportunities, you miss out on life. Like what opportunities are you missing out on? What parts of life are you missing out on? I think if, if I think this is mainly narrowing down my business focus and I think yeah. I will be missing out on, you know, potential clients, impact that I want to do and serve, serving others. Well, so what, what particular clients will you miss out on once you narrow down? My fear is that they're too few. Too few in your ideal segment. Yeah. Okay. So what is your ideal client? Who is your ideal client? Somebody that wants to improve in life uh, that are mm -hmm. not where they want to be. And uh, that, that needs, that needs a roadmap to get there. Okay. So how is that different from what you're doing now? No, it's, it's what I'm doing now. It's just that I, I need to, I need to, pro, I need to niche down and mm -hmm. I know I need to do it, but it's so scary and I don't know why. Well, and so, so that's what we're kind of, we're trying to chip away at, right? Like you have this belief that you're holding on to and just know it's not wrong, right? It, it's the way that you feel. So allowing that without judgment is so important. What we want to do is see what would happen the opposite way. So the fear is you'll, you'll miss out. What, what's the best possible scenario that could happen? That I gain total clarity and attract the people that are really supposed to be working with me. Mm -hmm. And when you think about your current, when you think about your current client yeah. and you think about the clients that are supposed to be working for you, what's the difference between the two? And I could probably serve them better. Mm -hmm. I know, I know them better. Mm -hmm. I understand them better. Mm-hmm. So if you can serve, know, and understand your clients better, yeah. if you niche down, yeah. what, what are your clients missing out on by you not doing that? Yeah, they, they can't find me. Mm-hmm. I would even suggest that the clients that are working with you aren't getting the best of you because you're trying to serve so many different people. Yeah. And what impact does that have on you? Yeah, I'm not living up to my potential, what I can do. Mm. So you seem like someone who will do more for others than you would do for yourself. I do a lot for myself too, but I, I like serving. <laughs> okay. Okay, good, good, good. That's healthy combination. Yeah. That's a healthy combination. <laughs> so, so when you think about your ability to serve, if no one can find you, how can you reach your goals with your current business plan, which is not to niche? I know yeah. your goal is to niche, but if you stay on your current path. Yeah, I'll, I'll be missing out for sure. Mm. And clients will be miss missing out for sure. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And so what are you afraid of? Uh, as I told you in the beginning, to miss out. 
Right. But it's, it's interesting because you use the word miss out, but there's something else there. It's not missing out because you just told me you wouldn't miss out. You just told me that you would actually serve your clients better. You would be in a better place. What, what, there's something else there. I think it is. And I think I explored it this week as well. I think it's probably what uh, I wrote this down and Tony Robbins said is you're never going to know unless you put yourself on the line. So I'm, I'm I'm scared of putting myself on the line. That that's ah. that's what it is. Uh, What's the worst thing that could happen if you put yourself on the line? I fail. Mm-hmm. And what does that what does that mean to fail for you? Uh, I mean, I will learn and it will suck. But <laughs> go to the negative part of failing. Yeah. So yes, right. So logically, you'll learn. How does your ego feel about failing? I'm not going to like you. Yeah. yeah. It would, it, would it be a public fail? Do you think? Uh, no. I mean, okay. I think it would, I'm you, I think I would be the hardest on myself that I think that's because mm-hmm. I'm a person who pushed myself a lot and I, I love achieving what I set myself up for. So I think it would be mostly me. So what does failure look like yeah. in a new niche? Yeah. I mean, it looks like not getting the traction and the clients that you want, not having the impact that I'm looking for. What is specifically the traction, impact, and clients that you want? Uh, Let's start off with um, traction. How will you know if your traction is successful? I mean, my, my goal is to help at least 10 million people in 10 years. Okay. How many people per year do you help now? Uh, I have had, since I started this, I've had an impact of, I think, 500,000 people, something like that. Okay. How long, how long did it take for the 500,000? Four years. Okay. Okay. Um, in terms of impact, how do you define successful impact? Uh, that somebody are using the tools that I share to create a better life and get closer to what they want. How do you track if people are using your tools? Uh, I mean... Feedback, uh, downloads, views, uh, what I put out, the content I put out. Okay. Um, and then in terms of clients, how would you define, how will you know when you have successfully reached your, your goal with your clients? If they have achieved what they want or at least gotten closer to what they want, I would see that as, as success. How do you know when a client achieves what they want right now? And they'll let me know. Do they? Some, yeah. Not all. Yeah. Not a whole lot. Because here's the interesting thing about this last one, and this is very common, is a lot of times we'll measure our own success by other people's response. It's also the tricky thing with social media, right, is that we're measuring our success on the response, which is the equivalent of waiting till the arrival. So what happens is we miss out on appreciating and enjoying the process because we're always waiting until, like when I get this certain number, when I achieve this, when my clients have the success. When our success is dependent on other people's response to us, we set ourselves up for failure in the beginning. 
right? Because we have no control over how people will respond. And with access to all of these people through technology, more people get access to us. So there's a greater chance that there will be people who don't respond well, simply because they're not a match for you. That doesn't mean you're not successful. That doesn't mean you're not great at what you do. It's just not a match. So I would look at redefining your, your way of measuring success in each one of these areas. So it's only based on your process, right? So for instance, um, impact. I measure my impact by the amount of information I get out to people on a monthly basis, right? I'm making that up as an example. So that it's only based on on me. The other thing about basing success on just you is that it helps build momentum. And the cool thing about momentum is, and I will tell you this works 100% of the time, is the response doesn't come from where we think it will come from, right? And I'll use, I, I have a client right now who I've been working with for six years and uh, she's like ultra successful, but she never, she would never have a database. She just didn't do it traditionally. So whatever, I help her build a business based on her way. So she just this past year started a database during COVID um, and has been doing these mailings. And what's great is because we've been working together for so long, her success isn't based on how many people respond to this mailing. Her success is based on how often she gets out there and her interactions with people. She's killing it right now. I mean, she is absolutely killing it because success is based on her momentum. It isn't dependent on those those responses from external factors. And so she keeps doing it and she's having a good time and she's enjoying the process. It makes a world of difference. Can you just talk about like, in that moment where you were, when you were in that stage of your life, the confidence is low, uh, you're seeing all the other cool kids doing their thing. Like what was going on in your mind at that point? And, and what, what happened for you to move past that? Yeah. Um, I've got to cast my memory back. It was a few years ago now, but, um, <laughs> but yeah, I mean, my, my confidence was low generally at school. I was always the smallest kid. I felt like I was the smallest kid anyway. I probably wasn't, but it felt like I was the smallest kid. All the other boys seemed to be growing up faster, taller, had bigger muscles, and I just was, you know, little old me. And, uh, yeah, it it kind of, you know, had an impact on my, my mental state as well. I wasn't very confident. I was very shy. I've always been very shy. I've always been an introvert guy. Even to this day, I'm not the loudest guy in the room, but... You know, so I've always had that, 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 those introvert qualities about me, and I do see them as qualities nowadays. Uh, but back then, you know, if you're not the, you know, if you're not standing out, you're not the loudest one in school, then you're vulnerable. You're, you're, you know, you're, you're a potential, you know, your potential to be the potential to be bullied is a lot higher. Um, and I, I was picked on at school. I wouldn't say I was, you know, because I know there's a lot more severe cases of bullying. So I wouldn't say I was I was bullied or such, but people tried it with me. People picked on me because I was quiet, I was shy. And yeah, my confidence wasn't very high. Didn't feel like I was I was good enough for everyone else was better than me. And yeah, that was holding me back in my younger years. Yeah. First of all, thank you for sharing this. And and I know many people listening to this show can relate to that because 
I think many people that are listening to this show, they're not exactly where they want to be in life. That's why they're here. And, and I do believe in wherever you are on your journey, we, we always should strive to grow because there's more lessons to learn and, and we can serve more, more people and, you know, live a happier life by doing that. But I know people that are listening now that might be a little bit down on their luck. They have a li- maybe a little bit low self-esteem and uh, they can relate to to what, what your experience at that point. Can you just share, I mean, that that's a tough moment. I know myself. I, I wasn't the most bullied, but I was bullied a little bit. I, I was, you know, small and I, I, I can relate to, to all of that. And... <laughs> In a way, most of it's it's in your head, but also at that point, people are like kids. Kids can be cruel, and adults too, right? But it kind of sucks. Uh, so, can you just share like, was there a series of moments that changed this and changed the trajectory of your life, or was there something specific that you can relate to that kind of was the tipping point? Um, <clears throat> there, there probably was a series of moments, but. You know, I can really, I can highlight one thing that I would say was was a turning point for me. Um, and it was when I went on a, a holiday. It was probably my, I think it was my first holiday. I've never been on holiday as a youngster. So it was only when I, when I um, grew up and I was about 20, 21. And one of my first boys holiday, as you do. And, you know, this was back in the day when we didn't have, smartphones with cameras on we you know when pictures were being taken it was the old school you know cameras with film that you had to take and get processed when you got back (laughs) um so when I got back from holiday I was going through the photos and there was a picture of me and you know a lot of people would say I probably wasn't in the worst shape but for me you know it was just quite an embarrassing picture I had a belly I had man boobs um I wouldn't say I was overweight as such, but I was definitely out of shape and just not happy with my body. So I'd already kind of dabbled in a bit of training and working out at that time, but wasn't really seeing the results. But that was kind of my my turning point. I didn't want to look like that anymore. That was my enough is enough moment. And, you know, I'm going to get serious about this and, and get myself in in great shape. So that was my turning point. And can you share, why was it important after seeing yourself, you weren't happy with your body. Why was it important for you to, to be in shape? What was the root of, of that importance? Yeah, I think that's a great question because it wasn't just about having a great body. It wasn't for vanity. I mean, it was, I'm not going to lie. It certainly was about, I did, I did want to look good. Um, but the reason I wanted to look good is because I wanted to be more confident. I'd spent the first half, first half of my life not being very confident, being that shy, quiet kid that didn't feel good and I felt like everyone else was better than him. And, you know, it was really, you know, I, I just became sick of that. Well, why is everyone better than me? What do they have that I don't? You know, and for me, I just, I kind of identified it was more of a self-confidence issue. So it's like, what can I do to have that confidence in myself? Well, I could go to the gym. I could start working out. I could look like this guy that I've seen in the magazine. Then I'd feel great about myself. I could look like, you know, I used to like wrestling WWE. Yeah. I could look like, you know, the Ultimate Warrior or Hulk Hogan or or Mr. Perfect, as as were the big wrestlers back then. Yeah, and these guys had so much charisma. 
character about it, so much, um, yeah, so much charisma about them that, you know, they're big superstars and it's like, wow, I wish I had that confidence. And yeah, so that's kind of where it come from. And, you know, they had great physiques, they had great confidence. I thought, yeah, if I have a great physique, will I have that kind of confidence? And yeah, it, it you know, the rest is history. It changed my life, really. The day I started going to the gym, lifting weights, didn't start at the gym. I started training at home, but yeah, the, the the day I decided to to change my body was was a was a was a big change for me. It improved my confidence, um, and that played into other areas of my life. You know, I you know I was more confident with with women. I was more confident in my job. I was more confident to leave my job and start my own business, which is which was a huge step for me. And um, yeah, it was. A, you know, it's a big deal, and and that's kind of linked into every other area of my life, because I I, I you know I went into the gym, I, I then became a personal trainer, got into the fitness industry. That's how I met my partner, you know, who I now have two boys with. So it's like, well, I was at a point where I'm either going to take this path, I'm just carrying on as I am, or I can take this path and go this way instead. So, you know. Not saying I've got a perfect life or anything, but I feel like I've taken the right path, and I'm I'm striving to be better every day. I think we're all striving for more. We're all striving to be better, whether it's through physical health and fitness, whether it's in business, whether it's to be a better husband, father, you know, mother, wife, whatever. We're all striving to be one percent better every day. I'm sitting here with goosebumps, Ed, because I I can relate to a lot of this, and I think people that are that are listening to this show hopefully can can see and understand that when you make a decision in your life to go all in on something and and, and do that for a long time you're going to re, going to see results in other areas of your life especially if it comes to your physical health right the physical health can change your posture it can change your mindset it can change your confidence like there's so many things that it's hard to even explain to people who haven't started the process yet. Uh, the body and mind are linked. You know, if you know, the body and mind are linked, you, if you're feeling down, sad, depressed, get up and start doing some star jumps. It will be impossible for you to feel, you know, at least not a little bit more happier, optimistic as a result of moving your body because the body and mind are linked. It's impossible not to, you know, you could be in the worst situation, you know, we've had a tough couple of years with COVID, you know, it's challenged us a lot mentally, but you get up and start doing some burpees or going for a run, it's impossible for you not to feel feel good after doing something like that or a little bit better at least. Yeah. So, you know, it very, it very much starts with get yourself up, get moving. It's going to improve your mood. It's going to improve your your physical health and your mental health if if mentally you have more energy and you're happier that's going to have such an impact it seems like a small thing and it is a small thing but you know it's that small little you know it's, it's almost like turning a big lever and it just like i say it plays into so many areas of your life if you're in a better mood you're happier you have a better energy about you you're more confident you get more things done you make better decisions and it just you know, it just, it really does spill into everything you do. Was that hard for you? Because I know, you know, I, I was bullied. I didn't have any friends. And then I went the opposite. I wanted to be liked by everyone, Ed. 
So my problem was that I molded so much in new groups with new friends just to be liked. And I realized that I got friends that didn't really care about me and things like that. But I, I learned that uh, through many years. And then now I feel like I have the ability to be, to be my authentic self. Uh, mm. But I'm curious, how was that journey for you? Did that come easy for you or like... Uh, um, I, I, I can I can really resonate with what you said there because I was exactly like that. I felt like I was trying to, you know, probably for the first thirty years of my life, I was trying to be someone else. I was trying to, yeah, trying to fit in with other people. I would find myself taking on their characteristics. Um, you know, maybe that was just because I spent a lot of time with certain people, but. Yeah, I don't think it was until I was around 30 that I just didn't really care anymore. don't know what changed really. Maybe it was because of the confidence that by that point I now have in myself and not trying to impress anyone. I'm not, you know, I really don't care whether you like me or not. I just try to be my my true self. And if you like that, great. That's, let's chat. If you don't, that's perfectly fine too. Totally respect that. But yeah, I don't think... I think it was a gradual transition and you just get to a point where you just don't care what other people think anymore, to be honest. Um, yeah, just be myself and, and, and I feel that's the best way to be. Speaking about dyslexia, uh, how, do you remember how that felt when, when yes. you got, when people said like, oh, you're dyslexic, did you even understand what that meant at that time? Like now you're going to another school, you have to leave your friends. Like how was, how did that feel as how, and how, how old were you at that time? So Peter, honestly, great question because just like anything, it's a process. And in the beginning, like you just mentioned, when I got diagnosed at eight years old, my parents come and told me in the middle of the school year that I'm changing schools. All I understood as an eight-year-old kid is that I'm, I'm losing my friends and I'm going to a, a new school, which is a specialized school. I didn't want that. I didn't understand what dyslexia was. I was afraid of it. I was eight years old. Then when I got into that school, like I said, that's Vanguard, I started realizing that there's hundreds of kids like me that have learning disabilities. So I started feeling more comfortable, started getting the proper tools, the proper teachers, the speech therapists that were high playing me out. And then I started gaining more confidence with my learning disability. And then at the end of the high school, like everybody, we look at what's next. What do we want to do? What career do you want to go into? And Peter, one thing that came to me in my mind was I want to be a lawyer. I like wearing nice suits. I like having conversations. I'm like, yeah, that's what I want to get into. As I looked into what it takes to be a lawyer, I realized that like 85% of the job is reading and writing. And granted, I'm dyslexic. So I'm like, I don't want to do that. Let me look for a job that doesn't have a lot of reading and writing. So I decided to go into fireman because that was something that interests me and it didn't play into my difficulties. Now, at that point, when I got into the professional world, I was still shy. Actually, shy is not the proper word. The actual word was I was embarrassed still with my dyslexia because I didn't want people to see it as less than. I didn't want people to see me differently because of it. So I didn't say it openly. I didn't. I tried to keep it on a hush-hush until a certain point in my life when I did a shift from... Um, 
being a fireman to going into entrepreneurship and being a real estate broker. And there's a whole story towards that. Cause I realized that my yeah. true calling was entrepreneurship. And I went into uh, fireman thoroughly loved it started working into it, but I realized that wasn't it. And I realized that the entrepreneur was my thing. Now, when I got into that, after a couple of years of having a hard time starting your business as an entrepreneur started blowing up as a real estate broker. And one of my speech therapists that used to follow me in high school called me up to ask me a question about a property. And a few minutes later, she's like, Chris, she's like, how's it going with you? And Peter, as you're seeing, I could go on rants. So I went on a rant. I'm like, I was in my early to mid twenties, making great amount of money. I was succeeding at what's like society says is success, the car, the house, the money, everything was going great. After I went on that rant, she's like, Chris, I'm the keynote speaker at this event put together by Learning Disability Institute of Quebec. I would love for you to come present your story of how you're succeeding as a dyslexic entrepreneur. Now I'm like, absolutely, let's do it. At this point in my life, in my mid twenties, I'd been becoming more comfortable with my learning disabilities. I actually went into a field that has a lot of reading and writing, and I found the proper tools and methodologies to work with it. So I had so much more confidence with my dyslexia. I was more comfortable with it. And kid you not, Peter, that same evening, she wrote me an email in a subject letter in big caps written, Chris, I don't think you should give this speech because there's still a lot of people that have a negative misconception of what learning disabilities are, and you might lose some potential clients. Now, I know she was coming from a place of love. She wanted to protect me. But I said, you know what? I'm going to call you Monday to tell you why I think I should do this speech. Monday rolls around, give her a call, Peter. And I tell her, listen, I'm like, I have to do this speech because I'm not out there talking about dyslexia. I'm not helping the kids that are on the school benches right now. I'm not helping the next generation. And I'm not helping my future kids because it's something hereditary. I would be fake. I'm like, I'm not fake. She's like, absolutely. That's what I thought. I just wanted to come from you. I didn't want to force you into something. I'm like, yeah, absolutely. I'm going to say this last thing on this part. So then I ask, I'm like, how many people are going to be at this event? She's like, about 200 people. I'm like, all right, cool. Peter, the day of the event comes. Granted, let me just give you a little picture. I'd never given a speech. The day of the event comes, I open the door. I look left and right. There isn't 200 people. It's more like a thousand people. Now at this point, my heart is racing. I am sweating bullets. I'm like, what the heck am I doing here? Oh my God, <laughs> sitting down, speaker after speaker is going off. This doctor, that professor, this, that, and the other talking about so many things. I'm like, what am I doing here? I'm a little broker. Like what's happening? Then they call me on stage, Peter. They're like, Chris, can you please come present your story? And there's this majestic, almost magical moment that happens in my life that I truly find this is my life's calling. I have to be on stage talking about how to get over learning disabilities, how to help people, how to make people become peak performers. And that was the moment that my life shifted. From that moment on, the second I got off that stage, everything I've done is I shifted my career towards being a speaker and a full-time coach. And everybody thought I was crazy at that point, even though they saw that, oh, there's something happening here, doing a shift to leaving a successful business that took me a, like a little while to bring up, doing that shift completely was a whole thing in itself. But that was the first time that I went on a public stage and I talked about my dyslexia. So now why did I tell you this whole story? It just shows you the pattern of anytime you have a difficulty, such as you, Peter, I'm sure you could say the same thing. In the beginning, when you were bullied, you probably didn't want to talk about it. You were probably insecure about it until you went to God to mix martial arts and you got more confident and you still didn't want to talk about you were getting bullied until you get to a certain point. You're like, hey, I have to share this story. But that's the arc of what happens when you live with something that is challenging. So that's how I felt from eight years old to now being 32 and thriving with my businesses and being dyslexic. Thank you for sharing that. And 
I think what we forget sometimes in um, in the school environment is that we all have different superpowers, right? Mm-hmm. So maybe the the reading and writing was not your superpower, but you were an, a very courageous and energetic kid, uh, and it feels like you you felt that on stage. Like I need to do this more. Uh, for people that don't, they, they might be great readers and great at other things, but I think the courage part in life it's so important, but also it, for some people, it's easy to, you know, take big risk for other people. They're more risk adverse. And, and how would you just talk, talk to courage and what, what can people do there? Like they want to take that leap, uh, but there's something holding them back. You know, I love that question, Peter. And here's why, because I truly believe any success in life happens with your confidence and how you see it. Before anything happens, you have to have the energy, the wherewithal to be like, hey, I could actually do this or I could try to do it and not be afraid of failure at a high level. I was blessed, like you said, that I'm dyslexic and because I was dyslexic, I failed so much. So because I failed so much, I realized that failure doesn't really kill you. It just puts you a step back. You just have to continue. So I was just a relentless individual. So what I would speak to that aspect of how to develop that relentlessness and that courage is if you're somebody that's doubting something towards, you know what, I'm doubting to start a business. Maybe I need to quit a job. Maybe I need to leave a relationship. Maybe X, Y, and Z. There's all these things. Start with small challenging steps and make them bigger and bigger, which will compound over time. And then your confidence will go up with that. Now, once you do those small victories, remember them or write it down. There's something that I call, Peter, my brag journal. Okay. It kind of says in a name, it's a brag book. Everything that I have succeeded at at a high level or somebody that I truly admire gives me a compliment, I write it down in this book. Now, why is that? It's because when I'm going through a difficult moment in my life and I'm like, oh my God, I failed at this, I did this, I was horrible on stage, X, Y, and Z. I go read this book and I start reading all of the successes that I've went through, all of the things that the people have told me that I completely look up to. They're like, oh my God, you're one of the greatest speakers I've heard and all that stuff. It changes your mindset instantly. You're like, okay, this one failure is one thing, but look at, look at my whole life. There's many successes to go towards. So what I would speak to that is take small steps at a town and then compound every single victory, one on top of another. And then you're going to see that you're going to be so much more confident to take those bigger risks, those bigger challenges to go forward and succeed in the way that you want to succeed. I like that. And, uh, when you made that decision to go from uh, real estate to uh, a coach, a speaker, like what happens after? Because we all know that uh, like everybody has been, let's, for you, it was a very specific moment for, because, yes. but for a lot of people, let's face it, it's New Year's Eve, you're, you're fucking drunk. You're like, next year, I'm going to get in the yes. best shape of my life. Or I'm going to start my business. I'm going to do yes. this. I'm going to travel. I'm going to quit my job. And then, you know, two days later, it's like, shit, now I have to actually have to do it. And it, it's yes. not as fun anymore. Mm-hmm. Uh, how you talk about that? Like Mon- come Monday morning or come Friday or whatever, when you sit down, like I'm actually doing this. How's the process? Yes, I love that. Once again, spot on with another great question here. So here's the thing. Everybody is able to set goals. Everybody. The difference between people that succeed extremely well don't only set their goals or set their intention once a year and call it New Year's resolution. They set it for every single day and for every single activity. 
What does this mean? They're able to take their goals and break it down into manageable steps and control and look at the only things that they can control that are going to give them the opportunity to hit those goals. Okay. So let's, let's break it down like this. Let me give you a concrete example. And this is a concept actually that was explained uh, by Angela Duckworth in her book, in her book, Grit, which she explains there is top tier goals, mid tier goals, low tier goals. Now let's just take this example right now. Imagine I say next year, I want to make a million dollars in sales. Beautiful. That's your goal. New Year's Yeah. I want to make a million dollars. Cool. Can I really, Peter, I'm going to ask you a question. Can I really control making a million dollars? Like, is it 100% in my control to make a million dollars? No, there's too many variables. There's might people might say no, there's too many things, competition, so on and so forth. But that's still my goal. Okay. Imagine you're selling a product that's, let's call it, I, I don't know, uh, 100,000, all right? 100,000 to make it super easy. So that means I have to sell it 10 times to make $1 million, right? Sorry for the math. We're not going to go into really detail, but it's really simple. Just follow me, people. Yeah. So I have to sell 10 times a product to get my 1 million. Let's say I have 50% closing rate when I speak to somebody, when I do a discovery call. That means I have to get on a conversation with people that are interested to buy at least 20 people, right? Because I'm saying I have 50%. So one out of two people will potentially buy it, which will get me my million. Now, how do I get those 20 people? Let's break it down to saying, you know what? Maybe I need to prospect a thousand people throughout my year to get that. That's the ratio or 2000, whatever the case is, you bring it down to a manageable step that you could control and I control it within the day. So if I break it down the math and I'm like, you know what? All I need to do is contact 10 people per day. They're going to give me a chance to meet those 20 people. Then I'm going to make potentially that $1 million. That's the difference between people that succeed and people that don't. They take a top tier goal, they break it down to a mid tier, and then they break it down to a low tier goal. So then all I think about is not my million dollars. It's not those 20 people. All I think about is I have to contact 10 people every single day. That I can control. Whatever happens, I can control that. So that's the way to break it down when it comes to goals. Because it's super easy in the beginning when it becomes motivated and all that. But if you don't have the proper structure system in place to do so, it's not going to happen. And for me, I was blessed at that point. I'd already hired my first ever coach when he came to that moment. Like we said that I was on speed, I was on stage and I decided to shift my career. My coach helped me structure that. I was able to put the proper systems and processes to look at what do I need to do one step at a time to transition my business towards something that's completely new, something that was unknown to me. So that's the way I approached it. And I suggest other people to approach it like that as well. Let's just have that sit with us for a while. You know, being that unstoppable you or that person that just walks out in the world and and, and lives life. And we we've all met those people. And I got I gotta tell you, Alex, you, you you're I'm like, fuck, I want to be that person. And some days <laughs> I feel like I am that person. Some feel some days I don't feel like that person at all. So can we just talk about that? Uh, you know, uh, being fail proof and like what does that even mean? Yeah. And I, I see that person in you and yeah. you know, we're all, we're all human and we both have, we have, we have all sides of ourselves. So it's not about being it all the time, but can we be it more often? And can we be that in some settings or opportunities where maybe we haven't been in the past? And if we can kind of change how that goes, maybe it's a date, maybe it's a meeting, maybe it's a pitch, maybe it's a workout, but if we can just change those, it'll have a big impact in, in what our lives look like, what happens. Um, so to me, being fail-proof and being unstoppable, it doesn't mean that you're 
you're you're not going to fail. We are yeah. all going to fail, but it means that fails won't stop you. You know, I don't want to be, you know, tone deaf with this reference, but bulletproof, if you wear something bulletproof, it doesn't mean a bullet's not going to hit you, Yeah. but it means that you're going to keep going. So that is the same, you know, rough analogy here is that we're all going to hit failing moments. But what I've found in speaking to thousands of people is that it's not so much the fail that stops people. It's everything we add on to it. It's the judgment. It's the fear. It's the pain that we kind of layer on. And that's what ultimately causes people to stop or quietly disengage from what they really want to have happen. We just back away a little bit. Yeah. I mean, I felt that in my life uh, many times and I, I think uh, as, as you, and if you're listening to this as well, but how, how do we, how do we get past that? Like what, what, what are the, some of the things that we can start doing in order to become yeah. a little bit more of that person? Yeah. I would say two main ones that I'd, I'd love to communicate to the audience. And, and one is more of like a ethereal uh, and one is more very practical. Yeah. So the bigger one is, is why are you doing this? And I know it, it can be charming and trendy to talk about our why, but what I, I think it is, is it's our visceral why. It's the one that it's not pen to paper. It's the one that when you say it or you feel it, your heart just beats a little faster. Maybe it's a dream that you always wanted to have happen. Maybe someone told you you couldn't and you want to prove them and yourself wrong. Maybe you just want to add something to your life that you've always wanted to be there or provide for your family. But whatever it is that gets your heart beating a little faster, that's really, that's the firepower because that's, what's going to, you know, I know in my journey with American Ninja Warrior, that's what would get my butt in the car to drive an hour when I was tired at night and train till midnight and drive an hour back. It's, it's having that visceral, powerful why. And then in the actual moments of failing, there's going to be some moments where yes, you want to, check in and re-motivate and all that. But sometimes we just need to get back to it. And that's really, you know, what I call in the book, there's this fail chain reaction that happens every single time we hit a setback, whether that's missing a deal or getting an argument with someone we love or spilling our coffee, it happens every single time. And that really helped me because it took some of the variables out of setbacks. And it was just like, oh, okay, I hit an obstacle. This is the ABC, and now we get back to it. Yeah. And uh, how, how how do you work on that? Because I know I, I'm yeah. pretty good at that. When I hit, you know, a road bump, I'm I get upset. Or if I if I I'm a competitor, if I don't get the results I want, I get upset. But I stay there very a very little time. I ponder, I learn, and then I I kind of get back up on the horse, so to speak. Uh, but I have friends and I have people around me. I know people listening now. They're they've been trying to trying to do something and they kind of quote unquote failed the first time because it, let's face it, if you're starting a new thing and you're failing sure. the first time, it's it's just part of the journey. And then mm-hmm. they kind of get discouraged because somebody might say a, a comment or they they they're scared of you know being judged and, and all those things. How do we narrow that gap from kind of failure with uh, quote unquote, until you know getting back up on the horse. Yeah, you you really you nailed the uh, that sequence, Peter, because that that really is what it is. You know, I noticed this when it was happening for me with Ninja Warrior. Yeah, I was just failing. You know, my fails per hour were at such a high rate 
that I was like, I got to figure out a system to this because if I don't, I'm still going to be getting upset. The gym's going to be closed. I'm going to be wallowing in the parking lot. Like I got to figure this thing out. And then it was kind of fun. Those next months I would just look and I would look at any time something would happen. They, someone would go to something late, you know, they, they thought they were prepared. They weren't, they missed a turn. And I was like, oh my gosh, this sequence happens every single time. And what it is, is the first thing is an emotional reaction. Now people are wired. People are different. Some people are going to have big explosive emotional reactions and get frustrated and yell. Other people are going to just quietly disengage and kind of shrink away. But the main thing to remember in that is it's going to be a wave. So if someone says something or you see something on your phone that, oh gosh, I can't believe the news is doing that, or this person messaged me that, just remember like, okay, here's the wave and that wave will pass. Now it doesn't mean block it out because that's just burying it, but it does mean, okay, let me just feel this and respond rather than just emotionally react. The last kind of nuance I'll say to that is for some people, time is a variable there because some people can handle this way very, very well. They'll feel the reaction. Okay. I'm frustrated, but let me just get back to what matters. Other people will let that emotion control them and they'll lose hours. They'll lose days. They'll lose weeks. Some people will do something. It doesn't go great and they never do it again. So there's a huge variable there. So emotions is the first one. The second piece is just like what you said, can you learn something? And I just ask people learn one thing. If that deal with the client didn't go well, why were you not prepared? Did you not connect? Were you not forthright enough? Did you not do enough research on them? Were you not confident or affable enough? Whatever, but learn one thing. It doesn't have to be, you know, there's probably a lot that we can all do better, but just learn one thing. Part three is recommitting with full effort and commitment and belief. And that can be tough because if you just screwed up at something, and I, this has happened so many times in my life and Ninja Warriors just made it very tangible where if you go to do something and it doesn't go great, it's tough to summon the confidence and the conviction to just get right back up and do it again with full belief. And that is actually where you want to rely on the first two steps. One, if you are a little pissed off, use it. If you're frustrated, use it. There's energy there. Part two is why you can believe that you'll do better is because you did learn something for the first attempt. So if we put that into action, our chart will kind of just look like this, these little growths of up one over one, up one over one until we actually get to our goal. Yeah. And I think, um, I know you write about this in your book as well, about confidence and like how how do we kind of work on our confidence? Because and, and what is confidence? You know, it's, it's, it's so yeah. hard to put that into perspective because I'm very confident in some situations where I have knowledge because I've done the work and then in a new situation, I'm not confident at all. Yeah. I, I mean, a hundred percent and and you nailed it. Confidence is this elusive, like superpower that sometimes we have and sometimes we don't, and we don't know where we can get more of it. So I would say two things, you know, one is I, I call some of your confidence bank, which is times where you weren't sure if you could do something, but you still showed up and did your best. And why that's so important is because in that whirlwind of fear and doubt, you can look at this evidence, this proof of times that that you showed up and you were fully committed. You were confident, even though you felt all these same feelings. And if you're just building your confidence bank, just start today. 
just start today and make that call even with feeling nervous and doubtful. Write that email, go to that workout class, even feeling fearful, nervous, and doubtful. And then you have that in your bank and it'll build and it'll compound. So now you have two things, you have four things, you have eight things in your bank. And so as fear and doubt and nerves start going crazy again, you'll be like, yeah, but you always do this. You always go crazy. And here's all the times where you were going crazy and I still did it. So if I did it, then I can do it now. That has really been a, a game changer in my own life as someone who's struggled with confidence. Yeah, no, that, that's great. And I, I think one thing that uh, I'll, I'll, I believe that a lot of people can uh, or do struggle with is the comparison. You know, we always, and I'm working on this myself. I know early on in my career as a martial artist and competitor, I always compared myself to others, which made made it a very painful experience, yeah. you know. But the the better I got, and like kind of now, I'm I'm more making like a game how I can become better in different ways. But it it took it it was a very long and painful journey. So hopefully, I'm I'm relying on you here to to shorten that uh, gap for for the listeners here. <laughs> well, you're saying you're saying comparison, right? Yeah, yeah, it's you know, and there's definitely some disciplines where comparison can really fire up more. But even as I say that, you know, we're always going to compare. And what I mean is, you know, martial arts, it's very 1v1. You have rankings. And, you know, I, I work with a professional golfer and, and and that's very ranked and measured. So it's easy to compare in American Ninja Warrior. But we all have that, right? You see Susie got a bigger deal or Billy's got a bigger car and we, we're all going to compare. Oh, my gosh. How is Tommy like? that charming or funny. So we're always going to compare. I think that's natural. I would like, there is firepower in it because I don't, I don't think it's right to simply put on blinders and say, well, I'm just going to do me and wherever I'm at is wherever I'm at. I actually don't think that's right, but we need to make sure that what we're grabbing from other people is so if Susie closed that deal, okay. And that fires you up to go and close more deals. If that fires you up to learn what Susie's doing, then it's really powerful. As long as it's not destructive, as long as, and I felt this, we're human. As long as it's not being jealousy or contempt, or it distracts you away, or it causes you to back away from what matters because I'll oh, Susie close five deals. I'm not going to do it. Yeah. So I, I, I think it's very important to be grounded and focus on ourselves, but to learn and to take in motivation from other people, um, it's just making sure that we use that as a powerful positive force and not a destructive negative one. And how how do we do that? Because I think that's 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 a million dollar question. It's hard, right? Because yeah. sometimes I mean it's normal to sometimes feel like, oh, I'm doing everything right, but why are everybody else, you know, living their best life and I'm here, you know, still struggling and and you get a little bit jealous and you you build some type of resentment instead of like having the positive and uplifting uh, you know, friendly friendly competitiveness, so to speak. Yeah, I remember a few years ago uh, when my, you know, my really full-time focus was doing TV hosting and stand-up, I remember that a buddy, a, a friend, yeah. right? So this is not even someone just random off the internet. This is a friend. I like him. I have, uh, you know, he's a friend. He had some really, his, he posted some video and it did phenomenally and it like blossomed into this amazing success. And I remember it was in the, it was in the morning. I looked at my phone first thing in the morning, which come on, we all got to stop doing that. I, I'm about 50-50 with a really grounded uh, 
beautiful morning of meditation and journaling and chanting. And then a 50% of like, oh, scroll hole. So I'm, I'm human. Come on. Now. I feel you. Uh, <laughs> but a few years ago, I see that, you know, I'm like sleepy eyed. I'm looking at it. And my, you know, my initial feeling was inadequacy, which is really fear, right? I'm, I'm basing out of fear of, oh no, whoa, I'm not going to have enough. He's doing, and all these like really thick, negative ugh, emotions. And then this thought popped in. I was like, just try being happy for your friend. Yeah. And I just like put it on like a shirt. I was like, let me just see what it feels ha- like to be happy for a person I like doing well. And I, it just felt so much better from a like cellular body heart place. And I've always remembered that. And it doesn't mean we're going to be purpose perfect with it. We're, we're, we're flawed creatures, right? We're, so we're going to have envy. We're going to have uh, longing and coveting and all that stuff, but simply just from like a foundational being excited for someone just feels better. And, and I also think it can be motivating of, Oh, wow. Look at what they're doing. That might be possible for you to do for me to do. We're talking about when, if you don't do something, there is a punishment. And you said that's not the best way. Like, hey, if I if I go drinking, I have to donate money. And I know yeah. that's that's a big part of coaching. And I know myself, I don't relate to that that much. I want to feel more joy. And I know you said it wasn't the the best way. So, in in your opinion, what's the best way of kind of sticking to your habits? <sighs> Well, you've got to use those tricks like the punishment at first to get the momentum. Um, And so, again, like, again, whether it's cursing, you know, I've quit cursing 10 years ago. um, I'm mostly through public accountability. And and I, you know, if I said I've said it to hundreds of thousands of people, literally told hundreds of thousands of people on my email list, um, in podcasts and videos, I do not swear. And so if I go to an event and I start swearing, people are going to go, you're a liar. You're a liar. And if, if you're a liar about this, you're going to lie to me about everything. So that's why I believe that public accountability and that commitment is so strong. But but the public accountability and the punishment for doing something and the removing of, you know, the junk food from your house, if you're a binge eater, the removing of alcohol from your house, if you're an alcoholic, the removal of certain things, they're all just chipping away at it. But, but they don't get down to the core thing, which is the belief in yourself. Yeah. If, if you remove the alcohol from your house and you never go to a, and you try to never go to a bar and you never do this and you don't hang around this pe- these people, but all of a sudden one day you end up in one of those situations, you're not going to have discipline and willpower and you're always going to be, I'm the, I, I am an alcoholic. That's why I can't go near alcohol. If yeah. that's your mindset, you're never going to be fully free. So you have to convince yourself that, hey, listen, I'm not an alcoholic. I'm not a binge drinker. I'm not even a social drinker. I'm just a social person. And I can go, I can go to the, the Rose Bowl or you know, the college football game, or I can go to the World Series, or I can go to the Super Bowl, and I can go um, you know, to my friend's wedding, and I can go here, there, and everywhere, and I don't need a single drink. That's the type of person I am. Once that's the ultimate, once you can get there, Peter, that's when you can do anything. But if you, if you rely on the other, let's call the other things hacks, right? You know, here's my hack. Uh, you know, my hack to stop drinking is that I don't have alcohol in the house. Well, again, you're going to leave your house at some point. You're going to be at a, 
at an event at some point and everybody else is going to be drinking. And if your hack is to not be around alcohol, you've lost because your hack has been broken. And if you're inside your, your mental programming is I like to drink, then you're going to drink. So the end of the day, the most important thing is that you change your identity. Now you change your identity through building your self-confidence and your self-confidence is benefits from those hacks. So you, when you, the way to build your self-confidence, you make a promise to yourself and you keep it. It's like people who tell them, you know, if you set your alarm that says for 6am and you hit the snooze button, you're hurting your self-confidence because you can't keep a promise to yourself about what time you get up in the morning. If you can't keep a promise to yourself about getting up in the morning, you can't keep any promises to yourself. And if you can't keep a promise to yourself, you'll never have big self-confidence. So it's the same with drinking. Okay. I'm going to go to uh, a football game this weekend and I'm not going to drink. And the way that I'm going to do that is I'm going to, you know, the good thing is I'm going with people who don't drink. Maybe I'm going with my church group or whatever. So nobody really drinks. And then, you know, we're going to not go to the tailgating. And I'm also going to, maybe I'm going to schedule like a 20 mile run the next day. So I can't be hung over. Great. Now I've got all these things in place. And then you go to the event, you don't drink and you're like, Oh, I can do it. I can do it. Now, you know, I had to do all these other things. I had to have these hacks in place, but I can do it now. Next time, you know, maybe you go to a Dodgers game and you know what, it's a Friday night. And you're going with somebody who wants to have one or two beers. And you're like, I'm not going to have a beer. I'm going to have a soda or I'm going to have something else. And you have a soda and a hot dog. They have a beer and a hot dog. And you come home from the game and you went, wow, I did it again. I can really do this. I can really survive without alcohol. I've made a promise to myself. I've kept it. And you repeatedly build that up until you're able to change your identity over time. So that's what we want to see in folks. Yeah, I love that. I mean, you're speaking my language. Hey, I'm a martial artist, as you know. And one thing, especially when you do Japanese martial arts, is called Bushido, the way of the warrior. And one of the virtues, virtues uh, a Bushi, a warrior has, is no promises are needed because when it's said, it's like it's already done. And that's something that I... I have embodied that. So sometimes I, with other people, I lose patience because there's so many promises and people break their promises all their time to themselves because of the identity, right? That we're talking about. You haven't changed the identity. But I'm curious uh, about, about you because we, we, we call you the world's most disciplined man, right? Which is awesome. Uh, but it comes with a lot of responsibility too. Do you still wake up at 4 a.m. in the morning or has that kind of routine changed for you? Or like what? what I, are- I don't I don't have an alarm. So I used to use an alarm and now it's just, you know, I go to bed around, my, my wife and I go to bed, you know, I think we went to bed around 7.30 last night. You know, now that it gets dark out so early, she likes to go to bed early. I like to go to bed early. I like to get up early. She likes to get up early. So, you know, somebody who goes to bed at 11 o'clock, I got the same number of hours in the day. I sleep the same amount as you. I just do it earlier than you. And so um, it's a natural thing for me. It actually is very beneficial for me. I get a lot done. And a lot of the, you know, when people originally called me the world's most disciplined man, it was because I had set up so many of those hacks in my life. I had set up a hack that I set the alarm for 3.57 a.m., and I made a promise to everyone that I don't hit the snooze button. And I wrote in my book that I get up at 3.57 a.m. And I promised my friend, Bedros Koulian, that I don't hit the snooze button. So I'm never going to hit the snooze button because of those things. Now, I wanted to hit the snooze button some mornings, but because of the, the hacks, you know, the promises and that sort of stuff, 
I, I wasn't going to. And then it just got to the point where it became a habit. So I made that a habit. Now I don't need the alarm. Now I get up anywhere from 3.30 to quarter after four. As long as I'm in that range, I'm fine with it. And then I made hacks like to for the for the number one thing that I want to do first thing in the morning. I built I built a system. So I, I'm not the world's most disciplined man naturally, but I decided I wanted to be a very effective and productive person. So I built systems that allowed me to go and become very productive. And then when I became very productive, people called me the world's most disciplined man. That's the thing. I did not. Um, you know, call myself that it was just that everybody else couldn't figure out how I got so much done. And if you get a whole lot done, people think that you're very disciplined, but it was just, Oh, okay. I just need a system so that the system pushes me in the direction of success rather than allowing me to wander in the direction of failure. Do you mind if I ask you, because I'm, I'm very disciplined myself. And sometimes these promises that I make to myself, uh, it, it sometimes hinders me because I've promised to do something and then I have to do it instead of kind of being in the flow. Like it seems like you are now, like you graduated from, you don't have to wake up 357 anymore. It happens naturally and you're more at peace with that. Is that an accurate analysis or can you just talk a little bit about that? Because I sometimes hinder myself by, I have to do it and it causes a lot of pain as well. Yeah, I mean, I wanted to. I want things to be set up where I enjoy the system. Um, I want things to be set up where success is almost guaranteed. And when when you're successful, then you're not going to feel bad about the you know the quote unquote sacrifices that you've made. So it's not that painful. So I'm always looking to get the results. I'm looking to get the enjoyment out of it. And if I really really dislike doing something. I need to question why am I trying to do this? And, and, you know, maybe this is not the best use of a, um, of my mental energy and physical energy, my life force. So, you know, in that situations, you know, sometimes it's worthwhile taking a huge step back and going, what am I doing? Why am I doing this? Is this really the right thing? If, If it's so hard, if there's so much resistance here, then, why is that? And can I really build a system that takes the resistance out or will there be resistance no matter what? 